The year was 1741. Uh, across Europe, people's taste in performance arts was changing. Italian operas were losing their popularity fast. London uh, had recently forbidden any performances with religious overtones on public stages. Uh, but instead of throwing up his hands, George Frederick Handel decided to pivot. He was an experimenter after all. And so this time, instead of experimenting within the plot line of a new opera or oratorio, he decided to experiment with a whole new musical genre. So part German passion, part English church anthem, part Italian opera, and in just 24 days, without getting much sleep or eating much food, he wrote what we know of now as Handel's Messiah. If you listen closely right now in the recesses of your mind and memory, you can surely hear the refrain of the Hallelujah Chorus, or for unto us a child is born. In the Messiah, he, he walked through the story of the nativity and the crucifixion of Christ and Jesus' ultimate victory over death. During his writing process, one of his housekeepers told the story of finding Handel in his study in tears as he was writing the, the Hallelujah Chorus. And Handel exclaimed these words. He said, I think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself seated on his throne with his company of angels. He saw Christ and all his glory and what poured out of him in response was one of the most famous compositions ever written. It says just one word again and again and again in a thousand different ways. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallel is the, the Hebrew for joyous praise or praise ye. And, and Yah, the ending there, is short for Yahweh or Lord. Praise you, Yahweh. Praise the Lord. And that's where we've arrived today, heaven standing open. And much of what we've looked at in this series called Deconstructing Jesus has been a look back, a look at the person and work of Jesus while he was on earth. We would, it's called Christology. And so we looked back at his birth, and we looked at his life, and his death, and his resurrection. All of that happened in the past, but one of the outcomes of that resurrection of Jesus is that he's still alive, which means that our study of Jesus isn't just a history project. It's, his ministry is happening right now, and it's going to continue to happen throughout all of eternity future. And so today, we're going to look to see what Jesus is up to and what he has planned in the days ahead. And this is the final week in our series, which, which may inspire a hallelujah chorus of its own to break out among some of you, because yes, it's certainly been a bit heady and at times academic and theological, but we must have these important truths as the foundation of our faith about the central figure of our faith, especially as we head into this Christmas season, which is not just about sentiments and traditions and hot chocolate by a fire. It's about a God-man invading earth in dual natures and ancient prophecies fulfilled, and natural laws flipped on their heads by miracles, and, and the inauguration of an upside-down kingdom. Without these things, there would be no such thing as Christmas. As we said, you know, you can't know Jesus intimately until you know him accurately. And so today we're going to look briefly at what Jesus is doing right now, and then look ahead to what, he, what is in store with his second coming. So, coming. So, first, what is Jesus doing right now? There are two things that we know for sure. Here's the first. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, let me just give you a quick sampling of the biblical evidence of this. Colossians 3.1 says, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 1 Peter 3.21, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven in and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers and submission to him. Matthew 26, 64. Jesus said, 
But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then maybe the most detailed descriptions, Ephesians 1, 19 to 22. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who, who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, and here's the description, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. So so what does all that mean? Why is this important? Well, part of the reason for this imagery and the reason it's so important is that this is a messianic prophecy. It comes from Psalm 110, Psalm 118, where the psalmist is using this phrase of God's right hand to describe the power and authority that are gonna be granted to the Messiah. That, that, that will ultimately subdue all of the enemies of God. But, but the right hand is also just a description of the fact that Jesus is equal in position and power and authority to God, and that they are together ruling and reigning over the universe. You could hear it in those descriptions. Jesus is sustaining the earth. He's holding all things together. He's extending salvation to all who would call upon his name. And the fact that Jesus is sitting This is important. It refers to the fact that his work of redemption is done and his enemies will soon be made to be a footstool under his feet. But there's a second thing that Jesus is doing right now. Scripture also teaches us that Jesus is at work interceding for us. So Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, there's that phrase again, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul then goes on to write one of the most beautiful passages illustrating that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. You've heard it many times. There are some other scriptural reinforcements here. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who have come to God through him because he always lives, hear it, to intercede for them. Or 1 John 2, 1 and 2, my little children, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, Here's the promise. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. And and so this work of intercession that Jesus is doing, it doesn't mean that Jesus is in a constant state of sacrificing for our sin. His death and resurrection paid for our sin once and for all. But while his work to secure our salvation was completed on the cross... It's finished. His care for his children will never be completed. And it's an ongoing part of his ministry. See, see, part of the intercessory role of Jesus is to be contrasted with the role of Satan, our enemy, whose name just means accuser. And so Satan is busy issuing his accusations against us, against God's children. And they're falling on God's deaf ears because at the same time, Jesus is advocating and he's interceding on our behalf. And so right now, Jesus is at the right hand of our Father, and he's interceding for God's children. And there's one more thing that that I'll mention at the end, but I want to spend the rest of our time today looking ahead to the future. What the Bible talks about is the role of Jesus as returning king. Remember I said earlier in the series that there was a promise way back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3 when God was levying out the consequences for that first sin, and he said to Satan, God said to Satan, there is one 
coming who is a warrior, who will set all things right. And he said, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And so the world waited for this warrior, the Messiah, the king to come. And there was a surprise when, when the warrior was born to a peasant girl in a little country town in a stable full of animals. There was a real surprise when the, that warrior died, a criminal's death. Dreams were shattered, hopes were dashed. But the warrior came back from the dead. And in his patience and grace, he is allowing more and more people to call upon his name before the final showdown, the final fulfillment of that Genesis 3. Satan started the war in Genesis 3 through sin. But Jesus is coming back to end it. And the world will be restored to a perfect place where God and his people will dwell as intended from the beginning. But before then, the warrior has to return to defeat sin and death and Satan once and for all. Now, before going any further, I think the Bible's teaching on certain aspects of, of the end times, the end of history, can be very murky. And so for today, I, I really want to focus on things that are undeniable, because most of our Christological concerns for this series are contained in what is obvious. And so we're going to focus on three things that are absolutely clear about the returning king. So I want to take you to Revelation 19, 11 through 16. That's where we'll hang out for the rest of our time. And whenever we turn to Revelation, and whenever we talk about the end times, everybody gets all ramped up. It's fun and it's mysterious to talk about the apocalyptic literature. It's very popular. I always tell the story that every youth pastor can attest to. When I used to survey uh, the youth group as to what topics we should discuss as a, as a group, there were always the same top three. We want to talk about sex, we want to talk about the end times, and will there be sex in the end times? And so the end times is, is a fun topic, it's mysterious, it's popular, but I want to concentrate on the stuff that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, to be true. Not all of the rabbit trails that come along with it. So look at Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the, the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, uh, of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So if I were to ask you to picture Jesus, like what do you picture when you think of Jesus? Some of you would say, well, you know, sweet little baby Jesus in a manger, like, you know, Talladega Nights. <laughs> or maybe you picture yeah, the Last Supper Jesus, like the Da Vinci painting. Or maybe it's Jesus with a lost sheep over his neck. Or that famous painting in every Sunday school hallway growing up of Jesus standing at the door, knocking, looking way too Caucasian with flowing locks of hair. <laughs> very few people, when asked to imagine Jesus, call to mind the, the picture of ferocious Jesus in the second coming with fire shooting out his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth and tats on his legs. It's a kind of scary version of Jesus that most people block out. We don't think of that Jesus because he's not as sweet and he's not as nice as the healer and he's not as cuddly as the baby. We, we don't like ferocious Jesus as much. But it's an accurate portrayal of the conquering Christ who is to return. And so here's the first thing that's clear about the returning king. 
And, and please forgive all the descriptors in this point, but, but each of them is important. The preaching team chuckled when I presented this a couple months ago. But, but these are all important descriptors. So here's what we know. There will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Christ. You got all that? A sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus. So, so the images of this passage paint one of the most powerful pictures of Christ ever recorded. In fact, if you use your imagination here, this verse says he essentially steps through heaven. Like on that day, when he returns, you're, you're not going to look up into the sky and wonder, I wonder what that little figure is up there. Wait, is that an airplane up there? Or, or maybe that's the Goodyear blimp? Or Oh, no, no, it's a, it's a horse. It's a, there's a guy on a horse where, with a, a robe dipped in blood. Like, I can't really tell. Darlene, come here. C- come look at this. Can you tell? Are you seeing what I'm seeing up there? That is not how it's going to go down. He will literally tear open the reality that you and I know and step into it. He will invade the universe in a way that the full magnitude of God will be made visible. There will be no missing it. There will be no misunderstanding it. He will split the sky in two. And again, I I want you to feel the weight of the scriptural witness about this event. It's not just the Apostle John in in Revelation who'd gotten a little old and a little senile as he wrote this book, and so he threw in some Nostradamus stuff at the end of his life. No, Jesus himself spoke often about his return. Here are a couple of examples of what Jesus had to say. Matthew 24, 44. Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. He said in John 14, 3, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. But, but then there's the greater witness of the New Testament. And it, it, it all anticipates the return of King Jesus. Acts 1.11 says, this, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What way was that? Personal, visible, bodily. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself, it says, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, the reason that thinking of Jesus' second coming can be so jarring is because so much of what we know about Jesus is is connected to his first coming, the incarnation, God made flesh. But what I want you to notice is that there are some striking contrasts between Jesus' first and his second coming. So he came the first time in deliberate obscurity, despised and rejected, born in a part of the world no one knew. But he will come the second time in unmistakable glory. The suffering servant who came into Jerusalem riding on a humble donkey is now coming out of heaven riding on a war horse with his eyes set on victory. That's a contrast. He came the first time in isolation. Only a handful of people in the whole world knew he had arrived in that humble little manger. He will come the second time accompanied by the armies of heaven. No one is going to miss him. People mocked him the first time as a false king, beating him, putting a crown of thorns on his head and a flimsy reed in his hand. In Revelation 19, we just read that that he wears many crowns and he rules with a, a rod of iron. So the second time, people will worship him as the king of kings. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. There will be no question. When he came the first time, he was apparently defeated by his enemies. He was found guilty in a kangaroo court, condemned, scourged, and executed. But when he comes the second time, He will triumph completely over his enemies. 
Verse 15 here says that vividly, he will tread the winepress of God's wrath. Why such a dramatic difference between Jesus' two visitations? Well, because they serve two different purposes. Jesus came the first time as the Savior, as the Lamb, to die for humanity and to bring God's grace. The second time, Jesus comes as a king, a lion, to rule humanity and to bring God's justice. He is the lion and the lamb. And we've experienced his love and his grace as the lamb, and we will also experience his justice and rule as the lion. Now, speaking of justice, here's the second thing that we know for sure about the returning king. Jesus will judge all of mankind. We read Revelation 19.11. It says, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So let's be clear. Jesus is not a tyrant. He is not capricious. He's not drunk with power. He's not jealous or cruel. But he is powerful. And more importantly, he is just and he's always right. And though he is full of mercy and grace now, one day, one day that, that door will close. There is a door of God's grace that is being held open by the blood-stained cross of Jesus Christ. And for 2,000 years, that door has been open to the entire world. And it is open even today. And over that open door are these wonderful words, whosoever will may come. Anyone, anywhere, anytime can go in that door and find new life and salvation and forgiveness and freedom and redemption and healing and eternal life. Many of you have walked through that door and can testify to the life-changing grace of Jesus Christ. So today that door is open, but the door will not be open forever. It will be shut at some specific times. It will be shut when you die. Like there is no second chance for salvation beyond death for those who have had no time for Jesus in this life. Once you die, that door is shut forever. Either you go through that door while you're alive or, or you will never go through it at all. And the door will also be shut when, when this happens, this sudden return of Jesus. When we reach the moment of Christ's return, all that's left is, is judgment for those who don't know him. Jesus himself said in John 5, for the Father has given all judgment to the Son. And there are all these parables that Jesus told that talk about what that judgment will be like. We know for sure that all of humanity will be divided into two groups on that day. One group is those who acknowledge and surrender to the personal work of Jesus and whose lives reflect that devotion to him. And the other group is those who have ignored and rejected and rebelled against the personal work of Jesus. And Jesus gave over and over again a, a variety of metaphors to, to make sure that we get it. But he, he, he told us that all of humanity will be in one of those two camps on that day. He, he calls it things like those on my right and those on my left. He calls it trees that bear fruit and trees that don't bear fruit and are thrown into the fire. He calls it wheat and tares. He calls it sheep and goats. But th there is no shortage of information on what will go down on that day. And when you compile all those accounts together, it's hard to miss this truth, that the activities of your life will reflect the loyalties of your heart, which means if you're going to be a faithful servant of Jesus, pleasing the Lord will be the primary aim of your life. Nothing else will be more important to you than that aim. And that when the master returns, there will be life and death consequences for the decisions that you have made about the condition of your heart and the use of your time and your talents and your treasures that were entrusted to you during this lifetime. And so our faith in Jesus must become the central and the driving force of our lives. Now, 
It may sound contradictory because we all know other verses. That Jesus also said these words, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. But remember, that was the first coming, that it was two different purposes. God doesn't want to judge the earth now, but, but he also won't allow sin to continue forever. Now, you have to also understand that the main object of God's judgment on that judgment day is not just humanity. It will be Satan and his demons. And when we think about this, we need God's justice when it comes to sin and evil. Like when Jesus takes his place as king, our sense of justice will finally be satisfied because the one who has been responsible for all the brokenness that we've experienced in this lifetime will finally be brought to justice. Think about that. Satan, the one who is responsible for war, the one who's responsible for divorce and cancer and child molestation, the one who's responsible for abuse and slander and arguing, for addictions and greed, for natural disasters and depression, for school shootings and suicides. He is gonna pay for his crimes. And our souls crave justice like that for these things. And stuff has happened to us. And stuff has happened to people that we love that no one deserves, and it's because of the schemes of the enemy. And, and when we see someone who seems to have gotten away with evil for so long, it sets off these injustice alarms in us. Satan has unleashed his fury in this world, and in the end, God will finally put his foot down, and he will finally rescue his children, and he rescue his creation from the power of the evil one and all who follow him. And all of this brings a sense of urgency to our mission here on this earth. And, and I just want to pause here. I want to remind you of something very practical. It's an opportunity that only comes around once a year. Next weekend is Christmas. It's a time when people are most open to say yes to an invitation to Jesus, to church. We happen to have an amazing experience planned for those of you who live in, in the Erie region called Christmas at the Warner. We have four services across December 23rd and 24th. And the reason we do it is not about Nostalgia, it's not about promoting the church on some big stage. It's not about candlelights or Christmas carols. It's so that more people might encounter this Jesus. He who was and is and is to come. And you've got a few more days to invite them. So here's what we know for sure about the returning king. There will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Christ. We know secondly that Jesus will judge all of mankind. Here's the third thing that we know for sure. Jesus will reign as our benevolent king for eternity. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says to his disciples, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. This will be the ultimate and final expression of Jesus' kingdom, the one that we now know in part, and then we will know it fully. And when Jesus restores the earth and, and sits on his throne and brings to completion his plan of redemption, things are going to return to the perfect world God had originally imagined for us. I said earlier that there's a third thing that Jesus is doing currently that, that I would come back to. Well, it's this. Jesus said he was going to prepare a place for us. So, so right now he's preparing a place for us. The, the end of the Bible paints the picture of the place he's preparing. And, and as we move from Revelation 19, where we just read about the glorious second coming of King Jesus, and as we approach Revelation 21 and 22, where, where we see this picture of the new heavens and the new earth, where we're going to begin to rub our eyes and discover that even the glorious world of Genesis 1, the perfect Garden of Eden, Eden was just scaffolding. It was just a preview. It was meant to prepare us 
for our eternal home. So I want to read to you Revelation 22, starting in verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night, there, there, there will be no more. They, they, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so that original Garden of Eden, it had four rivers. And now we, we see in this new paradise, one river, the water of life flowing and then sparkling through the city streets and out into the countryside and beyond. And the famous tree, the, the tree of life, which was Adam and Eve's undoing, it's now here again to provide healing, not only to individual Adams and Eves, but now the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. What we have here and what we see in this new Jerusalem, in this new Garden of Eden, is not God's plan B because plan A had gone so terribly wrong. It's simply that God's original design that he's been working on all along has finally arrived though it was arrived at by a long and winding and tear-stained and blood-spattered road. The most important tears and, and blood being those of Jesus himself, our Savior and King. And notice he's the centerpiece of this paradise. God's throne and the throne of the Lamb to the point where the sun and moon would be redundant. No need for them because Jesus is there. I can't think of any more perfect words to conclude our study in this series in Christology about the person and work of Jesus than his own concluding words at the very end of the final chapter of the final book of the Bible. And they bring tears to my, uh, to my eyes nearly every time I read them. Revelation 22, 16 and 17. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And then in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, we need you. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the cry of our hearts. So what about you? Like, the day is coming soon when Jesus will come charging through the curtain, which now separates heaven and earth. In fact, when, when you woke up today, if you're a Christian, you're, you're one day closer to heaven. And amidst all the conflicting ideas about the end times, there's one thing that all Christians can agree on. Jesus is coming back again. And his return is going to be sudden and dramatic and personal and visible. He, he will judge mankind, and then he will establish his eternal kingdom and his rule, and he will reign forever. And so what do we do about that? Listen, whenever Jesus himself talked about the end times, he never said, now, now go out and try to calculate down to the day when this is going to happen. I want to see charts. I want to see graphs. Get to it, people. No, he never said that. He never said, go build a bomb shelter, like collect up guns and canned goods and, you know, nasty food. No, he, he said, be alert. Be ready. In fact, I want you to hear his own words in Matthew 24, 42 to 44. He says, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Stay awake. 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. This is such a great analogy. Jesus is saying, if you knew for a fact, just imagine your life right now. If you knew for a fact that a burglar was going to try to break into your house sometime over the next 24 hours, between right now and 24 hours from now tomorrow, you don't know exactly what time, but you're sure it's going to be within that 24-hour period. It would change how you approach your, those hours. Like you wouldn't let your guard down. You wouldn't take a nap. You wouldn't get sucked into a YouTube rabbit hole. You wouldn't lazily settle in for a Netflix marathon. You would be on alert. You would be ready. And in the same way, if you really believe that Jesus is coming back, it changes the way you live. You begin to live in a way that anticipates his return. And wow, if we, could, if we could capture a vision for what life is going to look like when Jesus returns and when he sets up his kingdom, it will make us long for it in such a way that we would begin seeking it now. We would begin to seek justice now because we're longing for a heaven where there's no injustice. We would begin to love the unlovable now because we're longing for a heaven where everyone is fully known and fully loved. Like we would partner with the poor because we're longing for a heaven where there's no poverty. We would seek out and celebrate diversity because we're longing for a heaven where we will be with people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We would put our sin to death because we're longing for a heaven where sin has no power. We would strive to help people worship Jesus because we're longing for that place where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We, we, we would get our lives right with God right now. And so what would it look like for you to live your life alert to the reality that Jesus is coming soon to establish his kingdom? Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 10 and 14, he helps us to clarify. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and its works that are done on it will be exposed. But then he gets to the conclusion in, in verse 14. He says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but we know God wants every generation, including ours, to live in expectation of it. You see, watching, living, on alert, has a purifying effect. Knowing that you could stand before the Lord in judgment at almost any moment makes you think twice about how you're living your life right now. And on the other hand, not watching, not watching for his return has the opposite effect. We become sleepy, we become lazy and comfortable. And so which are you? Are you alert? Are you striving for holiness? Are you walking out your life in step with the Spirit of God? And listen, for those of you who have never surrendered your life to him, as I said earlier, Jesus was very clear that, that a day is coming when all of humanity will be divided into two camps. Those who acknowledge the person work of Jesus, that they're the ones who followed him and believed in him and worshiped him and staked their lives and eternities on him. And there's those who ignored and resisted and rebelled against Jesus. And a choice will be made by everybody. But, but more pertinent to us today is that you, you who are watching, you will be in one of those two camps. You will be standing in one of those groups or the other. And your eternity will be determined by which one you're in. And so Jesus comes at us in such a way that it's impossible to stay undecided. So I just want to be clear as we wrap up this series. What you do about Jesus is the most important decision that you'll ever make in this lifetime. 
It is infinitely more important than deciding whether you're going to be a Democrat or Republican. It's infinitely more important than deciding who you're going to marry, whether you're going to invest in crypto, what, what you believe about abortion or global warming or the southern border, if you're going to accept that job transfer, how to raise your kids, what you do with Jesus is on a whole different level because it affects all of those other decisions. And so I want to invite some of you to respond today. I want to invite you just to lay, lay your life down before him and begin to follow a whole new trajectory for your future. To, to end this series where we began with Peter, who, who when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? He said, you're the king. You're, you're the Lord. You're the one we've been waiting for. For our whole lives, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I pray that you would say that with Peter today. Love you guys.